0: Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to catch up with the UBS Chief Investment Office as well as our industry colleagues for a discussion on the markets, timely macro developments, outlooks, and asset allocation views. So joining me here on the line for the conversation today is Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office and excited to welcome back to the podcast today Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Double Line Capital. So our conversation today will be a very timely one as we will touch on everything from rates to policy impacts, including the prospects for inflation and what that might, and in some cases perhaps does already, mean for commodities. So Jason, Jeffrey, it's great to be with you both. I recall our previous conversation on the podcast here it took place in person up in our UBS studio Manhattan. So a different setting this go around, uh, though nonetheless plenty to talk about. And it's great to be on the line with you both. Welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you, Dan. Good to be
0: here. Absolutely. And I know we have no shortage of topics to hit on today. Before we dive into some of the items I mentioned just a moment ago, perhaps we can briefly touch on asset price valuations to start. And Jeffrey, since the beginning of 2021, uh, the notion of market euphoria has consistently come up in conversations on the podcasts here at UBS. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on valuations of U.S. risk assets today and how much optimism do you believe is already priced in?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's undeniable that looking at valuation metrics on the large cap U.S. equity space, it, it reads some of the extreme readings we've seen from a historical context, and a lot of that is because of the euphoria based uh, uh, growth prospects for 2021 and potentially 2022, but also just um, in general, um, you've had a price rebound of forecasted this growth and a stronger earnings season. So. I think it, it's a fair expectations to think in 2021 that multiples could compress and likely to do so. However, that can be a bit offset by the potential of earnings growth as well. So we're heavily reliant on the reopening of the economy. You're seeing this activity pull through the economy uh, through uh, most economic indicators, which are given very strong readings at this point in time. But remember, the market's forward looking, so a lot of this is priced into the market. That said, I think when you look underneath the hood uh, of the U.S. stock market, there is the potential to allocate to parts of the market which do have significantly more attractive valuations and don't scream um, as as strongly overvalued as the broad market. And that's going to reside within the value sectors. And so we've seen a strong run in energy thus far um, here to date. Uh, you're see- you've seen some volatility in financials, which I expect that, do relatively well as the curve continues to steepen later this year. We're in a consolidation mode and rates. I'm sure we'll we'll address that. But also when you look across just uh, things like industrials, materials, uh, things that are benefiting from this reflation concept, I do think that those present interesting opportunities. So I do think there's links to the value trade. Um, especially as rates uh, continue to move higher in 2021 as, as the bond market prices and this reflation, this growth story. Uh, on the fixed income side, um, it's undeniable too that, that this translates into pretty, High valuation uh, in risk assets, but I think one of the parts of the market that's a little more overvalued than risk assets in the bond market is the rates market, and that's because of the levels of inflation. and And I know we'll talk about this on the podcast today, but ultimately, um, as we reprice inflation to reprice growth rates, uh, it does seem that the the treasury market is a bit overvalued and should probably be somewhere between fifty to one hundred basis points higher than today's levels. That said, the Fed's footprint uh, will dampen that a bit. But I do expect that to, to push higher. So because of the low yields, I think it's, it's priced bond risk assets a little tight, uh, but I think there's there's more risk in the duration component than the credit component when it comes to fixed income. So uh, th- that's my broad sense of thinking about uh, U.S. markets today.
0: Well, thank you, Jeffrey. And to your point, we will dig a bit deeper in a few moments into a few of those topics, rates, inflation, though, Jason, want to get your take on valuations of U.S. risk assets where those stand today from your vantage point can
1: kind I of pick up where we you know Jeff left off you're know, talking about the, the fixed income you know landscape because when people think of what's expensive in the U.S. you know they tend to default to you know equities because they can see you know you know prices they can look at you know p multiples and sort of think well these are these are extreme but a, a more consistent way to look at evaluations valuations is you trying to estimate like what the risk premium you're getting paid for buying a different asset class and every asset class to a different extent has some sort of you know risk premium measure and, and I think if you think about like what's the most expensive or what's the least amount of compensation you're getting from a risk perspective, uh, yeah, I think it is probably almost like you know U.S. Treasuries, especially longer duration. Not a lot of sort of you know, term premium, kind of risk premium, sort of built into there. Credit, uh, you know, a little bit more, but still relative to historical perspective, you know, credit spreads are, are pretty tight, so not a lot of you know, uh, you know risk compensation there. Equities, then, if you look at uh, you know an equity risk premium measure, uh, it's kind of on the. On the Probably below the, sort of a long-term average, but not dramatically so, and nothing like say the you know the 2000 period when we were in the bubble. So even though stocks might people might think they're expensive, you know, no asset class is really cheap. Um, but on a relative basis, you know, you know, equities aren't necessarily more expensive. Arguably, on a relative basis, probably a little bit cheaper than kind of a fixed income. So I think that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind when we have the, the kind of valuation conversation. Uh, I would just see a couple other things, though. You know, on the kind of sentiment instead sort of you know you know the, what's being priced in terms of optimism. Bullishness, I think, across equities or across investors is quite high. I think we can see multiple surveys and different measures that would all support it. But in some way, relative to where we were two to three months ago, I think some of the extreme frothiness that existed back, say, in January, February has actually kind of come out of it. And it was definitely rampant in parts of the market that we've talked about, Dan, like, you know, SPACs or IPOs or maybe some areas of, you know, EV stocks, things of that sort. Uh, and it seems almost kind of coincided where some of this frothiness has come out as we moved into the end of the winter, into the spring. And maybe whether it's kind of retail investors, you know, they're not sort of locked in home, you know, because of you know, shelter in place, they're not actually going outside because they've been vaccinated. That literally might be translated to a little bit less sort of some of the extreme patterns that we saw before. Which I think is is important. So some of the concerns about bubbles that were, I think, you know, we began that you're talking about, they seem to be a little less you know, problem today than they were three months ago.
0: Thank you, Jason. And to your point, yes, we've been having these conversations a lot over the past quarter or so. And some of these sector valuations, they are a product and part of the scope, the scale of unprecedented monetary and fiscal relief, of course, intended to mitigate and manage the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I I do want to single out one recent proposal. Uh, Jeff, curious, what do you believe the economic impact of the American Jobs Plan is as it's currently proposed today? I know a lot can change. What will that consist of and what might be some unintended consequences? of this scale of fiscal policy. And if you don't mind, if I sneak in one more question, is the scale of policy even warranted right now in your view and consideration of the trajectory of the economic recovery here in the U.S.?
2: Well, I'll start with that. I mean, you know, the, the size of the programs and, you know, when, when they start at one, two, three trillion dollars, um, they're pretty, pretty aggressive. I, I think we all agree with that. Um, but, you know, do we need something? The answer is yes, actually. If you look at the labor market and you look at the jobs out there, you look at the people who are underemployed using the U-6 measure, uh, you, you get to a roughly a 10 percent-ish type of rate today. Uh, if you look at uh, the people that are receiving extended benefits uh, from the unemployment programs, from the state programs, this is part of still the CARES Act that keeps getting extending, uh, keeps getting extended. Uh, What you find is that there's roughly around 16 million people that are receiving some form of benefits. Now, some of these are are an extraordinary program uh, in addition to the traditional unemployment mechanism where uh, you're you're seeing contract workers and and, and people who didn't traditionally qualify for uh, unemployment benefits that are receiving those. So when you look at the amount of assistance that's going out there, it does indeed seem like uh, there is more help needed. Now, the labor market is the first to get hit in a downturn, and ultimately the recovery from that side is more slow going than than the pain is inflicted. And so when you look at what's uh, transpired in the labor market, there has been improvement. Uh, I do think the unemployment rate at 6% or the U3 is understating some of the damage done in that area. And so I think when you talk about, you know, the Jobs Act and and the focus of the word jobs or infrastructure, those things are very important, but we know that a lot of these bills are filled with pork. So at the end of it, you say, is it really necessary? I think if you were surgical and went through, uh, which is impossible to do when it comes to government, there is there is the ability to really target the workers that are needed here. But I think what this just takes is time, and time cures these, these ideas and concepts. But my biggest concern is that, You're going to see some stress in the labor market if we continue uh, to to mail out stimulus checks and we continue uh, to really provide support to those who may not necessarily need it. And, you know, these thresholds of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or so, I would argue that most of those people don't need the stimulus. That said, um, it is going to activity. It is boosting the economy. uh, And we're going to have a knockout year because of it. The question is, is that going to lead to an overhang next year? Um, and just the ability, inability to continue to really significantly grow there because of the debt overhang. So in general, it's hard to say what the, what the uh, ultimate bill will look like. Uh, I do think that it's going to be challenging to get it done uh, until really you have to go through the process of reconciliation later in the year. So uh, I think it's something that we're going to continue to talk about. We're going to see evolution there, um, but it's really too early to tell exactly what it looks like. But I do think that the labor market does need more assistance out there Um, And a lot of that could be just more PPP, opening the economy, getting things back uh, and firing all cylinders again.
0: Thank you for that, Jeff. And I know this topic of fiscal policy lends itself to implications of inflation, which we'll get to in just a moment, though, Jason, want to get your take on uh, the necessity of fiscal relief and singling out, again, the American Jobs Plan, what that looks like today and what your thought is there.
1: Well, I would take a little bit of a a different angle on it, uh, more because when we think about you know when this could be passed, you know there's a lot of challenges as Jeff alluded to. So let's say something gets passed in the you know, October time frame, you know the money doesn't start to get dispersed until you know twenty twenty two so the you know the economic impact this year is you know essentially you know zero, which means the people who need assistance right now they're going to get it from the existing i think stimulus that's been passed. and hopefully, if things go well by you know December of this year, we could have added five, six, seven million jobs back to the labor force that were lost as a result of the pandemic. I think we're still down, you know, eight to 9 million jobs relative to where we were in sort of in February of last year before this hit. So a lot of them could come back before this, this package, you know, has even passed. So I would look at it as more of like, well, what does this mean for the, the medium to longer term outlook for the US? Uh, and I think the goal would be obviously to get all these people who haven't been sort of working or underemployed for really in some sense a decade, pull them back into the labor force. And that's kind of what the Fed has been talking about in terms of achieving maximal employment. So ideally, over time, you want to increase the labor force, increase the productivity of people. I think ultimately, you know, if the focus is on infrastructure, we can define that quite broadly. But to me, it all kind of distills down. Does it make the U.S. economy kind of more productive, you know, long term? We know that just by any more money and if it's not fully funded by taxes that's going to have a further sort of cumulative impact on the economy so growth next year could be positive which is fine but i think the real aim would be that, like does this help the long-term kind of growth potential of the us economy by investing in areas that have maybe been under invested before uh, i think the jury's still much very much out on that you know the history of, of you know, you know even infrastructure spending is positive but there's also you know you know there could be wasteful spending it could also be the case that you know by the time the productive investment kind of gets out there, we could also have an economy that, that is overheating, and we'll, we'll talk about inflation a little bit more, that could cause the Fed to maybe kind of react to it. And so before we get, to, you know, long-term benefits, we could also have sort of more short-term pain. If you're sort of designing, you know, policies, yes, you'd want to invest this way. I think the reality is like once you actually have to put this in practice, um, there's definitely potential for things to kind of work out well. This could be scenarios where the impact is, you know, ultimately kind of you know somewhat muted there's the scenarios where, you know, it ends up being sort of wasteful government spending that kind of overheats the economy. Um and I think only, only time will tell at this point. It's a good
2: point you bring up on tax receipts, because uh I was reading some research and looking at tax receipts, you know, as as a percentage of the overall spending. And we have hit the level and again it's because of the current environment, but the tax receipts are less than half of overall spending from Congress. And so if you go back through history, and, and Jim Bianco puts a, uh, put this data set together, so shout out to him for, for the work, but when you look at what he put together, he shows that tax receipts being less than 50% of the overall spending typically is only occurred during periods of war, so World War II, World War I, Civil War, and the like. So it is quite interesting that we're talking about taxes, raising taxes, everything. It's only going to move the needle when it comes to the amount of spending. So I agree with your, um, your your concept of the overhang of being there and just the debt burden. But to me, I just found that as an interesting factoid today.
0: I do want to run with the topic of inflation. I know that's come up in the conversation a few times already and inflation risk, real inflation risk being one that is top of mind for investors, our clients. I'm curious, Jeff, can you walk us through your inflation outlook and are we already seeing evidence of real inflation popping up? I can say that it costs more to fill up my car today than it did a year ago, so we we might be seeing evidence of this already. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a Lot of it. There's a lot of uh, to unpack in the inflation argument, both directions, and I'd say. And I, I think what we're going to experience over the next 12 to 24 months is what I'll call the push in the pool effects of inflation. You're going to have things that are pulling prices higher. Uh, those are going to be supply chain constraints. So we see this with chip shortages, right? Uh, so it's not just a traditional commodity complex, but also just supply chains being redesigned due to the pandemic and also due to, to trade policies. So you're, you're seeing that effect. I mean, you see the impact on GM and Ford, uh, where they're going to struggle to produce trucks this year uh, because of the inability to source those chips. Um, you talk about uh, gasoline prices. Well, uh, yesterday, we're recording this April 21st. I believe yesterday is the one-year anniversary where oil prices went negative for the day or went for two days. We got down to negative $37 a barrel. So what? why I point that out is that what you're seeing in, in some of the inflation is what we call base effects. And every economist knows about this. Every bond trader knows about this. So it's nothing profound. But the year-over-year comparison, just like with earnings, uh, just like with performance right now, is kind of, uh, you know, you get these extreme ratings. And so we know in the next uh, inflation report, CPI and PCE, that it's going to have peak base effects in it. That is, your measurement period will be up the lowest level of last year. And so, what you're going to get is uh, an inflation print and CPI that's going to start with a three. So, is it going to be three, three? Is it going to be three, six? Um, The bond market really doesn't care because everybody knows that it's a lot of base effects. So, what you're going to see over the next three to four months is probably consecutive prints on CPI with a three handle on a year over year basis. Now, people look at month over month to kind of calm their nerves there. But when I talk about the push and the pull, what you're seeing, too, is that you're still going to pull downward on some of these disinflationary pressures. And these are aging demographics. Uh, it could be the consumption side of the equation um, as things start to kind of slow down off the euphoria you talked about of all the stimulus payments. But in general, in order to get inflation up, what you're going to need to see is core inflation to move up. That is the things outside of commodity prices. And so yeah, I'm sensitive to the idea of your, your gasoline costing a lot more. Um, some of that is just you know supply constraints in that space as well. But when you look at what's driving core inflation, one of the biggest drags right now, and this would be uh, shocking to most people, is owner's equivalent rent. So what's been a very steady piece of the inflation component over the last six or seven years has been the housing market. And so if you look at owner's equivalent rent, it's inside of 2% on a year-over-year basis. Now think about that. Think about house prices over the last 12 months. You can use Case Shiller. You can use FHFA data. What you'll see is that you have double-digit price gains in the housing market. And so how can owner's equivalent rent be lower or, or, or just be slightly higher when you have this strong asset price inflation? Some of that's pressure from cities of rent. Some of it's hedonic adjustments, Some of it is you know commodity adjustments that go into those calculations. So what you're seeing, too, is some of this data is going to be muted over the near term. So uh, that's what I'm saying it's a push and a pull here. But, you know, when I think about the commodity market, how undersupplied it is, how CapEx constrained it's been, and how intensive it is in CapEx, uh, to me it says that commodity prices are going to continue to drive higher over the next 12 to 18 months just due to demand picking back up and those constraints we have on supply. You see this in copper prices, you see this in oil prices the shale industry can't ratchet up production as quick and so as long as OPEC doesn't come and flood the market you're likely to see 75 dollars oil this year so as you start to look at all these inputs going going into uh the supply side what you're finding is that it's going to cause prices to go up and you see this across lumber you see it across anything that's been in high demand so it's a long-winded say say a uh, winded way to say it's too early to tell uh, but I think you need to keep your eye on the inflation. you got to look at core inflation. And what we also have seen in the last, uh, let's say, since the pandemic, at least in the last nine months, is that goods inflation is the thing that's driving more of core inflation versus services. Now, that's not shocking given we shut down the economy, restaurants, hotel, leisure. Um, a lot of travel was diminished. But let's see if goods continues to be part of that consumption basket as the services pick back up. And if you see both of those two things firing over the next three to four months, uh, then I would argue that you really need to start paying attention to inflation.
0: Thank you for that, Jeff. Uh, Jason, what about your thoughts on inflation in terms of the warning signs to look out for, the timing, and the potential impact to commodity markets? Uh, Jeff mentioned a few examples just now.
1: Uh, So I sort of begin my comments by saying that I think, you know, Economists have learned that over time, forecasting inflation is really hard. Because I think their track record is not very good. And I don't mean over the next month, because you can look at the components of the inflation measures and sort of you know parse like mechanically how they will move. But more along the lines of you know six months, twelve months, twenty-four months down, like what, what kind of inflation will we have? And I think part of that is just sort of you know some of the factors that Jeff have said, like there's there's kind of push factors or maybe that kind of supply side constraint factors that could cause prices to go higher. There are long-term secular demand side or, or, or say pull factors that are, are still maybe a little bit disinflationary or certainly kind of working against higher inflation and trying to kind of calibrate those and weigh those is is always challenging. On top of that, we know this near term from the base effect that you know inflation is going to rise just on a mechanical year over year basis. That should moderate as we go throughout the year. We also know that some of the inflation measures right now that, that's like anecdotal certainly is due to certainly temporary supply side issues related to pandemic, you know, or, or other factors. Uh, you know, so we think just a few weeks ago, we we're looking at the, the ship, the container ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal that has the backlog for a couple of weeks of you know, shipping containers. We still see issues in the ports on the West Coast of a backlog of unloading, you know, a good ship over from Asia just because perhaps there are not enough workers. Um, you know, on semis, there's been like a, lot of, you know, production headwinds. And even in Texas, when we had that winter freeze in February, you know, that shut down some of their plants for a couple of weeks. So these are all temporary phenomena and, and they're transitory. But you know, it's unclear yet just how many of these are and how much you know the alternative kind of like you know delay of recovery in terms of inflation maybe moderating. Because I think the key question for the markets is: we know we're going to get a rise in inflation this year and sort of moderation likely later this year. But what does inflation look like? You know, you know, 12 months from now, are we back down to sort of like you know a two percent for the core measure of inflation? Is it sort of continuing to rise? Uh, you know, where are inflation expectations do they hold steady? Because I think that's what the Fed is. is really concerned with they don't want inflation expectations to rise because once they do it tends to become a self-fulfilling kind of pattern so all this is to me would say like my default assumption is we're going to get this surge in inflation but if we look kind of 12 months out down the line it, you know it should kind of go back towards you kind know, of the long-term trend and, and the market the, the you know the bond markets and inflation markets set sort of pricing ultimately that, that to play out because you know, we've spent the past decade of, or pre-pandemic, the decade of China to generate higher inflation, you know, with central banks and even going back the past 20 years. And they've kind of struggled. So I think the burden of proof to see sustained inflation is, is, you know, we have to see it before I sort kind of fully believe. it. I think that's kind of where the markets are at this point in time. On commodities, I think it's, it's a core part of the story. It's a little bit different, though, because, you know, the lead time to invest and build new capacity is, is not months, but it's years. And so we see one of the reasons like, why you get these sort of multi-year commodity cycles is just because, you know, you build production. Suddenly there's excess supply, prices decline, markets recalibrate, you kind of pull back production, and then suddenly demand kind of grows again. And it takes years to kind of ramp up production, and it may be the case that we are on now a early stages that sort of ramp up uh, of production, but demand is going to grow faster. and I think you could get sort of commodity price inflation for those. Water macro factors, which will flow into regular inflation. But I think the commodity dynamic is a little bit different than. Yeah, the way we look at other all inflation measures, which includes things like, you know, health care spending or or shelter that are less tied to the commodity story.
0: Thank you for that, Jason. So I do want to pivot and spend a few moments getting your outlooks, thoughts on rates, where they are today, an important topic that I want to make sure we dedicate a few moments to. So Jeff, what are your thoughts as to why we got to where we are today so quickly with rates relative to where we were at the beginning of this year, 2021? Also want to get your thoughts maybe on the recent pullback we've seen i know today the 10-year it's at a one spot five eight. and then looking out ahead a bit what's your rate outlook near to medium term and if i throw one more in i know this is a very loaded question where are you seeing opportunities within fixed income today
2: Sure, uh, that's a lot there, so I'll try to be concise. But, um, I, I think if you think back over the last, like, nine months or so, and, or let's even go to 12 months now, given that we're, we're getting towards into April, uh, what you saw was the idea of the reflation story. It came on the back of the Fed support. It came on the back of CARES Act. There was the, the bazookas were being fired from all, all parties involved. And so what you saw first in the rebound was the equity market you saw a little bit of credit, the ones that were being supported by the Fed, to respond first. So that was the 1st reflation concept. Then what you saw a couple months later was the commodity complex. You saw a broader participation in credit, but rates were still muddling along. And so depending on what part of the curve you use, you use 10s or 30s. The 30-year did bottom in March on a closing basis, but it took till the first week of August for the 10-year to bottom. And so uh, I think the tenure was skeptical. Uh, there was a lot of people thinking that the Fed would have infinite support, yield curve control, um, and just manage rates to an extremely low level, a la Japan. However, what you saw was that as, as things started to pick up a little bit, there was more optimism in the market. The, the market started to repri- reprice inflation. So what you saw in the first move in rates from August, the really let's call it the first few weeks of January, this year was a, a repricing of inflation expectations. So uh, this is what Jason's referring to: the bond market price net, through break-even spread. Uh, you saw that. At first, I was a little skeptical of that because of the Fed's outsized footprint within the tips market um, that they really distorted some of those prices. But they've had, uh, although an increasing ownership, uh, it hasn't been really at the margin. a significant step in since they did last summer. So they went from like seven percent ownership to north of twenty percent of the tips market. However, what we saw this year was a continuation of that reflation and, and repricing of some inflation back in the market. Again, this isn't 70s style inflation. We're talking about a 2.5-plus inflation rate right now, uh, or roughly if you look at the 5-year. But then also what happened is that the rates market woke up to the growth story. And it took uh, kind of hitting some of those critical levels. We had to get through the 100 basis point. Um, and what you saw was that the bond market or treasury market rates really started to reprice both of these stories, it was slow to do so. Now, uh, you mentioned the the recent pullback. The bond, the treasury market, I I call it the bond market, but the treasury market was very, very oversold, right? So people look at technical losses on equities all the time, but the bond market was reading extreme oversold readings for many weeks there in February. And so what you saw was that we kind of hit some critical levels. There was a bad auction at the end of February. We shot up, we overshot once again. And there, there was it was due for some consolidation, and so this is something that we had a little bit duration in our portfolio. saying, okay, look, at least rates can rally from here, um, but we're thinking about trimming a little bit of that again uh, as we expect the next move up upward in rates. And the idea was that we're oversold; there should be some consolidation, and not shockingly, you're seeing kind of a risk-off sentiment from the rest of the world right now, uh, given the you know we had the the most COVID cases since the pandemic reported this week. Uh, there's a lot of negative news outside of the U.S., Take like in Brazil, India. I mean, very, very much mired in this next, in this most recent wave. And so there is this negative overhang here, which I think clears. Once that clears, the consolidation was good for rates and it pushes us back up. So if you look over the last, you know, let's call it the last eight or nine years, the 10 year tends to trade in somewhere between a 40 to 50 basis point range. It breaks out, sets a new center of gravity and does that again. That's exactly what we've done this year. I mean, we, we've raised about, we, rates are up about 70 basis points or so, um, for the year. But we, we, we've, we've hit these new levels. They become, uh, they become part of just your psyche. So people say, well, what level of rates does it hurt the equity market? I think you need another 40 or 50 again before we take a pause, right? Because it is the discount rate. It's how people think about, um, you know, pricing of risk and cost of capital. But it's these moves, the extreme moves that really rattle markets. If it's gradual, people just normally put that into the model. So I do think rates push higher. I think you see something in the handle uh, probably this quarter, if not early next quarter, as we start to see more and more economic activity come through and we get to this late, latest wave. So I also think that that's short term, strong, strong for the dollar, um, just in the short term, as we push up in rates. Maybe the rest of the world doesn't follow suit as much, uh, and it makes it uh, attractive to own the dollar in the short term, and it sets you up to be able to kind of short that going forward, or at least get non-dollar exposure going forward. So, in general, I expect to, to see that. You know, I, I think, you know, given a lot of the models we look at, whether it's the steepening of the curve, uh, which you expect out of, uh, out of recovery, uh, whether it's something like copper to gold ratio, it's looking at nominal GDP models. Um, if, it's, if it's looking at kind of uh, just uh, multiple kind of fundamental things we look at, it argues that the 10-year should be somewhere between 25 and 3% today. Now, we know that the Fed's footprint has something to do with that, so those need to be revised down. But I, I see as, you know, testing two, two, I think two will be a resistance point at first. Uh, but when you go through it, it will become the support level. So uh, your last question there, uh, what do you see in the bond market? I think managing duration is very important. Uh, there has been an influx of, of debt in the corporate debt market. Uh, I don't think that that's a problem for 2021, 2022. Uh, that's a problem for 2024, potentially, uh, when you look at maturity walls, um, if, if indeed we have significantly higher rates. But uh, I think credit's okay to own. You just have to be careful with how much duration it has. The investor-rate corporate market is one of the longest duration uh, markets within the U.S. fixed-income market. And so uh, even though that the credit spread or the spread that you get um, for buying credit over treasuries um, isn't likely to widen significantly, but you're going to be whipsawed by duration, as you've seen all year. So I think the, the best thing for investors to do is be patient. Um, there is it's the opportunity to trade a little bit of this range. If you own a fair amount of duration today, it could be a good potential to reduce a little bit of that. Buying low-duration-focused uh, strategies, uh, owning things like structured credit, securitized products like mortgages, Uh, When I talk about mortgages, I'm talking about uh, non-agency mortgages, commercial mortgages, CLOs, ABS, uh, things that are more uh, institutional investor oriented, but they're things that still have credit, they have similar if not greater spreads in the corporate market, and they have massively less duration. And that's a lot of the way we're positioned in our credit books uh, to take advantage of this current environment. And it looks like, you know, with this consolidation, there's a chance to kind of reload on some of this positioning. So that's something that we're doing at the margin today. Um, if I saw rates push below, you know, like 145, 150, I would definitely want to be a, a, another seller of another leg of duration here. Uh, but I think you have time. It, it's on your side here. I think it's just um, being careful with how much duration one owns. I think that's going to be the continuation of the theme. For the rest of
0: the year well thank you jeff for your thoughts on rates as well as your guidance in terms of allocation within fixed income jason i know you want to weigh in a bit on the rate environment uh, where we might be going as well as how to think about positioning within the fixed income space so what are some thoughts you can share with us there
1: sure so i think you know i would agree with much of what Jeff said um, so i think directionally we're you know kind of very much aligned and also in terms of the asset class implications But one thing that i think we're, we're a little bit different is where the ten year would go, uh, you know, and how soon it would get to that level. So, you know, our year end forecast is two percent for the ten year. Uh So, when, when you know, the idea that we could get uh, to handle by the end of this quarter, next quarter, it's definitely kind of accelerated in terms of what we're thinking. Uh And then this is, a, I'll, I'll pose a question to you, Jeff. But just you know, as we kind of think about, or I think about, like, what would sort of drive the ten year significantly higher after the big move we've seen in the first quarter, and now the past you know month or so, it's been you know kind of consolidated in this range. Of like 155 to 1.7 uh, percent. that the market seemed to like it resets, and it's expecting, if you look at sort of longer term, what the market's pricing for the Fed funds rate and you know, multiple years down the line, where it's pricing for you know, futures rates and inflation, it all of it sort of suggests that we'll get this surge of inflation. The Fed's going to look through it, it, gradually raise rates, and two, three, four, five years down the line, the Fed's going to achieve its goals. And it's going to raise the policy rates and sort of the long term kind of rate. What it uses is a long-term kind of you know, neutral rate of around 2.3%, 2.5%. Uh, there, you know, inflation kind of gets back to kind of long-term target levels. And the rest, all the longer-term rates are kind of consistent with that. So my thinking would be that in order to get a, a bigger move higher in the 10-year sooner, that there has to be something that would have to happen on the macro environment or the policy environment. Because we all know growth is going to get better. Inflation should take higher. The bond market's kind of pricing for that. So I would think the catalyst to get the 10-year higher would have to be something that the Fed you know, does. Potentially next week, but maybe more even more likely June at the next meeting when they maybe start broaching the topic of tapering, giving the market some guidance. Uh, but I'm curious, like Jeff, like so, what is it? What specifically are the catalysts that you'd be thinking that would drive us or the drive the the ten-year above two percent? You know, before per, potentially the end of this quarter or early next quarter.
2: Yeah, I, I would say the catalyst is just real yields uh, going up. Uh, if you look at something like the five-year real yield, I mean, it trades at roughly like a negative 170 basis points or so. Uh, to me, just given the growth outlook and prospects, um, not just this year, but over the next couple of years, and again, just assuming we go back to trendline growth, uh, you know, call it 2.3%, which we were doing uh, post-GFC through the pandemic. And so from that perspective, I think it's a repricing of real yields as the catalyst here. As again, the rates market thinks about this. Now, you mentioned tapering and, and, and policy hikes. Um, I, I don't, I don't see the Fed tapering this year. Um, potentially, they give some guidance, but I, I think that's closer to the third quarter or maybe like a Jackson Hole type speech. than, than definitely not next week. Um, potentially, you know, you, you don't know what six weeks hold. So, but potentially, there's the ability to do so at, at the June meeting. But I think the Fed is really committed to slow policy and. You know, some will point to the futures market and say, okay, well, there's the, the idea that there's three hikes by the end of 2022 priced into the market. And I say, well, that's just a probability waiting mechanism. Um, you know, the market probably thinks there's something like, you know, the Fed's going to fall behind the curve and have to hike every meeting or, you know, at least quarterly next year, uh, you know, starts to do so. So maybe that gets you to four to six hikes, something like that. And then there's the probability that, know, they don't uh, hike whatsoever, which I think it should be more heavily weighted. So that's how you get to kind of three hikes. But to your point on tapering, um, you know, I I think that the the tapering doesn't have to be the catalyst for the curve to steepen uh, at this point. Because, again, the market is is going to read into inflation data, the growth data. And I just don't I, I think real yields are way too low in this environment. I think that's the catalyst. In my viewpoint, Jason, uh, I do think we are grossly oversold. I think it's a consolidation point. Uh, again, I don't think it's a vertical uh, ride up in, in rates, but I think once you get through some of this negative macro headwinds we're seeing with the virus right now and people focus here back on our growth prospects, that that's the next leg up in yields. Again, we're, we're arguing over 40 basis points or so, so it's not like a huge move, but if you own long-duration assets, it, it can have some detrimental price performance. Hopefully
1: that made sense. I, I, yeah, no, I definitely agree. Like like you know, why someone would want to buy a five year treasury with a real yield of minus one point eight percent, that's it go go ahead. But yeah, like it feels like that's just you're way too low. I would just want to, like when did the market, you know, really start to move higher and I'd I would have thought, you know, perhaps it's gonna take a little bit more of a Something on the Fed side, just because you know we all know growth is going. Well, the consensus of you certainly is kind of growth is going to get better. So usually, if that's the case, then it should already start to be incorporated. But maybe just we just need the data to actually kind of fully kind of materialize to in significant numbers. Right, and Jason,
2: on, on, on that point, yeah, on that point about the negative 180 basis points or so. Um, you know, one thing we think is the next volatility is going to be in the belly of the curve. So everybody's focused on 10s and 30s, or a lot, of, a lot of people are focused on 10s and 30s. But if there is this real growth and real yield prospects coming back into the market, uh, the five-year, I think you can, you can really get hurt more than necessarily owning the 10-year at this point, especially on, on a DVO-1 or duration-equivalent basis. So um, even though I'm talking about shorting duration, I would be cautious of, of looking at the five-year um, as a point to try to trim duration to to own some treasuries. If you're going to do it, I I would recommend the barbell type of strategy, or at least buy shorter duration credit and and marry that with a longer duration asset. So I'm glad you brought up the five year.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. That's one of the reasons why within credit, we've been recommending loans versus high yield because the concern of you know the the, you know if you get a big sharp move in the five year, it's going to hurt high yield a lot more than it's going to hurt loans, um, even if they have kind of comparable credit risk. But it's kind of like yeah, and I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. But also on top of that, you know, the other thing is if the five year pushes up, but a lot of people don't realize is the high yield market will actually extend. So the duration will actually extend as well, uh, because of the call sides, what we call negative convexity, wonky bond stuff. But that's another thing to be cautious of at the five year, it could be significantly more detrimental to high yield than loans and and we would agree with that position,
0: Jason. Jeff, Jason, I know at this point we're beginning to come to the end of our time together. You've been very generous with your time. I know we're a bit over, but this has been a very beneficial, productive conversation. So I do want to get some closing thoughts and Jason, perhaps we can provide our guest, Jeff Sherman, with the final word. So I'll go to you first with this, Jason. As the economy is moving towards a reopening recovery, and I know we've hit on some of these areas a bit already, but any final thoughts in the way of positioning guidance across asset classes, and I'm curious as well, is there still opportunity in growth areas that might have benefited from the stay-at-home economy?
1: So on the first question, you know, I think there's still, you know, definitely opportunities. You know, had a six-month reflation trade that has been on, you know, a term I used last week, kind of spring break since uh, kind of early to mid-March until recently, where you've seen after a really strong performance of small-cap stocks, value stocks, Obviously, you know, inflation expectations rising, rates rising, and, and growth stocks underperforming. That kind of paused and even reversed to some extent over the past month. When we look at over the next six months, we think that there's more to go on that, that trade. You know, maybe it doesn't kind of fully kick in in the next couple of weeks or next month, but on a six-month horizon, just because the growth data is going to be you know, strong enough, the or you know the pick up in inflation, all that should continue to favor that area. And this kind of goes back into some comments that Jeff made earlier in terms of you know opportunities in the markets and you know, value stocks. Especially relative to growth, still looking at relatively inexpensive. Um, so there's, that's kind of how we would, on a medium term horizon, set sort of position for. We think there's, there's some value there, but at least near term, next month or so, perhaps there'll be some choppiness and before it kind of fully kicks in. You know, on the question of kind of stay at home, like I think this becomes a much more idiosyncratic story. Uh, you know, that depends on like, what stocks, you know, like what their valuations, how much they pull back. You know, there there are some stocks you know, like you know Disney, for example, to be liked by people because it is about the reopening play to, you know, because people go back to the theme parks, but it's also a stay at home play because people will watch Disney plus. So I think those things that are, are a little bit more kind of, you know, uh immune uh to, to whatever scenario plays out. And then also just thinking more about, you know, the conversation we had regarding infrastructure spending. You know, we recently published a a POTUS 46 report looking at infrastructure spending and the different ways in which the money could be dispersed, traditional investment, but also green tech. So thinking about, you know, what would benefit from the spending there from a long-term secular growth, I think those are some areas that we'd also kind of look at um, that would be a little bit more stay-at-home or or kind of fit into, into the kind of secular growth story that did so well last year
0: thank you for that jason and jeff it, uh, same set of questions to you
1: yeah I, I think that you know what people need to rethink
2: is what what's worked you know uh, last year is is we're seeing a reversal thus far this year and the biggest question is is it a rotation or is it you know just a head fake at this point um at, across that so I, I think what people need to do is just think about what's worked uh i you know we still got to like technology i mean it's going to have the it's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to be a dominant theme in the economy. But also just think about how much allocation one has. So uh, we're big advocates at this stage of the value rotation. Uh, I think that it makes a lot of sense given where we are in the economic cycle and the recovery that's underway uh, that you want to you want to start tilting more towards value. I think also ultimately you want us to be thinking about uh, the other parts of the market, international markets on the equity side. And that includes emerging markets, which seems to be a pretty consensus idea. Uh, but also the European market, as, as Europe's had problems here, I think there is the potential for European equities uh, to, to perform, not just from a the standpoint of underlying, but also from the currency side as well. So uh, that may be a month or two early as we're seeing more challenges there. Uh, but I think it's a good time to start accruing a little bit of that as well. As we know, uh, a lot of investors are under allocated there. I still think the commodity complex is something that's attractive. Um, yes, it's been a big move uh, over the last six months or so, but in general, I, I do I do agree with Jason's earlier comments too, of that it's a long-term capex cycle. Uh, it's very difficult just to, to up production, and I think we're we're in a couple-year uh, price appreciation type of environment simply due to the supply constraints. And so those those can get resolved. It's it's the class of the cure for high prices is high prices. So I think there's more room to run there. And also, if the, if the dollar does uh, start to depreciate after some of this rate move uh, that we expect in the near term, if it starts to depreciate from there, uh, that's accretive to all of those trades that I described. So you know, from, from my perspective, I think it's a risk asset type of environment. Uh, you don't want to get overexposed to risk. At least the Treasury market um, does allow, allow you a little bit of protection if you want to go out and buy the long bond. Uh, so for those that are concerned about some of the disruptions, uh, you can see buying the long bond, it still works. Uh, in these markets, and, and the current levels, although not not attractive over the long run, do provide some insulation there. So I think it's about balance. It's not trying to go all in at this point in time, but I do think that uh, there still is the potential to do some of this rotation. I think that's really what investors should be thinking about, uh, the things that have worked in the past. Um, let's go back to the reopening economy. Let's look at those things. You're seeing consolidation, some of this risk, uh, whether it's leisure or it's travel. Um, this week. And so I think it's a good opportunity to to really think about uh, starting to accrue positions and and build away from Themes that worked last year.
0: Well, uh, Jeff, Jason, it was great catching up with you both. Thank you for joining our listeners on the How Should I Be Position podcast. Uh, Hopefully, next time we all get together, we'll be in person back up in the studio in Midtown. But really appreciate your time and insights today. Really enjoyed hearing your thoughts. Thanks,
2: Dan. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Jeff, for joining us today. Yeah, great talking to you again, Jason. And look forward to it in Midtown Manhattan next time. Take care, guys. Definitely.
0: Absolutely. Thanks again, guys. And again, today we have been joined by Jason Drejo the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Double Line Capital. How Should I Be Positioned as part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora.